This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burns Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Back to the podcast. The topic that I'm going to discuss today is perhaps one of my favorite numbers on a pulmonary artery catheter or a Swan-Gans catheter. And that's the mixed venous saturation of oxygen, or what's typically known as the SVO2. We could debate whether Swan-Gans catheters or PA catheters, whatever you prefer to call them, make differences in patient outcomes. That's perhaps a topic for a different discussion. It's been debated now for years. Um, I'm not... uh, I'm, I'm. not a big fan of PA catheters. I think my opinion, the data shows that they haven't really changed the outcomes. But the question that remains from that, is it the PA catheter itself, the piece of plastic, or is it the person at the end of the PA catheter, the physician or the nurse practitioner or the nurse uh, who is caring for the patient, who isn't making the right decisions based on what the numbers are showing? Several years ago, I was giving a talk at what the Society of Critical Care Medicine calls their um, critical care academy. And most of the people in the room are medical, surgical, and anesthesia intensivists who are either board eligible or board certified uh, in critical care and taking this course as a review. And they had one of those audience interaction kind of ask a question and what is your answer, A, B, and C, and it would give you instant feedback. And I was amazed standing there watching this uh, lecture that was going right before mine, how many people who are so are designated and trained in critical care, we're getting some of these fundamental fundamental uh, issues of PA catheter data interpretation wrong. Now, SVO2 is also gaining additional popularity uh, and notoriety a lot in regards to what's called the Surviving Sepsis Guideline. And we did a podcast on this as well. Go to the website, uh, icrounds.com, or get it through... Um, uh, Apple iTunes and, and download it, but the SVO2 uh, is one of the outcome uh, measurements uh, in, in resuscitation of the patient, both with volume resuscitation and the use of inotropes and vasopressors. And uh, that podcast goes into great detail of what our target should be. Today I want to focus on what is this SVO2. SVO2 is, is measuring the mixed venous saturation in the pulmonary artery. Now, not necessarily in the superior vena cava or the inferior vena cava. Uh, people would tell you that those are different based on the oxygen consumption. But is what is the saturation uh, of the blood leaving the right side of the heart and going out to the lung. And how this is measured that when you look at a PA catheter, you see a small little red light. And what happens is this is basically a, a reflectance a spectroscopy where light goes out, it reflects off of the red blood cells and reflects back. And based on the absorption of light and the light that comes back, the computer is able to say, well, the the saturation of the blood in the pulmonary artery, leaving the right side of the heart on its way to the lung to become oxygenated, is roughly 75%. And what does that number mean to us and how do we interpret it? If we are to assume that when blood leaves the left ventricle and goes out to the body, that it has 100% saturation. 
the venous saturation, the mixed venous saturation, is telling us when it's coming back to the heart right before it gets to the lung, the number is perhaps 75%. So it's desaturated roughly from 100 to 75%. Well, what will drive that number up and what will drive that number down? For instance, obviously the number going down from 75 to 65, that would seem like that would be perhaps a bad thing. And what are those things that could drop it? Well, one is the patient may have a low cardiac output. So as the oxygenated blood is going out to the peripheral tissues, it is going through the peripheral tissues at a lower rate. There's less oxygen delivery because of the lower cardiac output. And the tissues are extracting more oxygen from each volume or each deciliter or milliliter of blood. Uh, and therefore, that would indicate a low SVO2, and that circumstance would mean a lower cardiac output. Well, what could initiate a lower cardiac output? Well, in a surgical patient, one of the things that could do it is a patient who's hypovolemic. A patient's coming out of the operating room from uh, having a major intradominal operation. They've got a lot of third space fluid. They may be oliguric. And you'll see that SVO2 drop from, say, 75 to 65%. And it may do this, typically, before you even see a change in the urine output. In that circumstance, you may want to give the patient a fluid challenge and see that the SVO2 would come back up. And the physiology of this would be is that I gave the patient fluid that would increase the stroke volume. Increasing the stroke volume would improve the cardiac output, and improving the cardiac output would then improve my mixed venous saturation. So we're looking at the oxygen delivery side of this equation. And the things that improve oxygen delivery, the things that make up oxygen delivery, if we think about the equations, is that the delivery of oxygen is really a uh, combination or the product of the content of oxygen and the cardiac output. And so we're focusing on cardiac output. Another thing that could drop it to save my patient is having a low cardiac output because maybe they're having an MI. Maybe their cardiac index goes from 3 to 1.8. And that decrease forward in flow will drop the mixed venous saturation. And therefore, as I go to troubleshoot it, I could say, oh, the SVO2 went from 75 to 65. I need to troubleshoot it. I find that my cardiac index went from 1.8. And maybe they've got a good stroke volume. And therefore, I need to do something to improve the contractility of the heart. Other things that will affect the delivery, as we said, is the content of the, the, the oxygen in the blood. And one of the principal drivers of that would be the hemoglobin. Because we said that the, the, the content of arterial oxygen is the delivery of oxygen, the, the delivery of oxygen is a product of the content of oxygen in the blood um, plus the cardiac output. And, and the content of arterial oxygen is, is a product of the amount of oxygen that is bound on the hemoglobin and dissolved in the plasma. So in that circumstance, I may have a patient who has a hemoglobin of, say, 6.8. They would have a low SVO2. I would transfuse them a unit or two of blood, and I would watch that when I did that, the SVO2 would come up. So you can see that if I'm taking care of a patient and my SVO2 goes down and normal, we may say, a normal is 65 to 75. But if I see the patient at noon and my SVO2 is 75 and then I come back two hours later and I see that my SVO2 went from 75 to, say, 66, well, they're both normal numbers, but that trend line is somewhat disturbing. And so I start looking at it and I say, oh, their hemoglobin is low or their wedge is low. 
uh, or their cardiac output is low, then I can manipulate those numbers and improve the SVO2. Now, I'm talking there about what is happening over a period of time. One of the things that I, that I really don't like when I walk into the ICU is that when you look at the bedside computers on the SWAN, these SVO2 computers really have two types of screens. They have a screen that has all of the hemodynamic numbers that you get on a PA catheter. You get, you know, you look at the DO2, the VO2, the shunt fraction, the oxygen extraction ratio, and the numbers go on and on and on and on and on. And what they do is, it looks impressive. There's about 40 variables there. And those 40 variables are measured in one instant in time. So if I haven't really shot numbers and recalculated them since noon, and I come by at 2 o'clock, I'm still seeing on that screen what's happened at noon. But there's another screen that looks at the trend screen, and it basically creates a line, and I can look at that trend screen over two hours, four hours, six, eight, or 24 hours. I like the 24 hours. But I want to look at the trend, because that tells me, is my patient getting better or is my patient getting worse? Because the patient that we presented as an example went from 75 to 66. Both of those would potentially be considered normal values. But if I saw that trend line going down over a period of two or three hours, that would initiate uh, an investigation on my part to say, what's going on with this patient? Now, the other thing that I will find me to get almost cataplectic on rounds is you'll have a PA catheter in, and we're rounding on the patient. And certainly there's a large emphasis on should we give blood or not give blood. And I've done podcasts on that. I don't like transfusion thresholds. I say we transfuse based on the physiology. We transfuse patients when we have uh, symptoms of oxygen debt. Well, the PA catheter using the SVO2 will tell us that. Because if I'm making rounds and the patient has a hemoglobin, say, of 7.2, that's that's a gray area by anybody's standard. But yet their SVO2 is at 75%. Would I transfuse them? Probably not. Because there's not really a good sign that there's any kind of oxygen debt there. Uh, But if their SVO2 was, say, 54 that would say, well, that's a potential problem. Let's start and potentially give the patient a unit or two of blood. And as we did that, we would watch what would happen to the SVO2. So part of that number we've talked about is the oxygen delivery to the peripheral tissues. Now I want to focus on the other side of the equation, and that would be that of oxygen consumption. Now on the consumption side of the equation, we're looking at what oxygen is being removed from the blood as it goes out to the peripheral tissues. And what are some of the things that can do that? Well, one of the things that can do that is something like fever. One of the other things that that can cause an increase in oxygen consumption will be increasing the patient's overall activity. Um, Shivering would be one of those. Uh, Thyrotoxicosis would be another one of those. Um, And sepsis. Now you may say, well, sepsis, I thought SVO2 went up with sepsis. Yeah, SVO2 does go up with sepsis initially. Excuse me, if the patient's well resuscitated. If the patient is hypovolemic in the early state of sepsis, you'll actually see the SVO2 will go down. Now, one of the things that we do have a patient who has a PA catheter in, I'm interested in what the SVO2 does when we wean them from the mechanical ventilator. Because normally, you and I sitting here either making a podcast or listening to a podcast, only about 3 to 5% of our cardiac output is used for the mechanics 
of respiration to move our diaphragm, our intercostal arteries, and so, or our intercostal muscles, and so forth. Very small amount. But if you take a patient and you're trying to liberate them from the mechanical ventilator and you're loading them more and more on their increased work of breathing, but they can basically increase their work of breathing using the bellows, trying to rest, uh, trying to move air in and out of the lungs. So that's potentially 25% of their cardiac output. It's a large amount. And you can see that as we start stressing the patient and using more of their muscles, uh, more of their cardiac output to breathe and maintain resp uh, respirations, that that will cause a drop in their SVO2. So when I'm taking that patient down on a ventilator and they have a PA catheter in, I'll look at that number as well and see that as I'm uh, perhaps I'm decreasing the rate or decreasing the pressure support and giving the patient more work of breathing, what is the impact of that on that SVO2 number. So it's a very helpful number in that regard as well. Now your SVO2 typically goes up uh, in sepsis, and I said early on, if a patient is hypovolemic, because remember, um, septic shock is a form of distributive shock, that the, the vessels dilate and we have to volume resuscitate them, that you may see an initial drop in that SVO2, and as we volume resuscitate them, that SVO2 will be typically higher, and that's because of, of issues like shunting, some mitochondrial dysfunction, a typical SVO2, normally maybe 75, but you get a patient who's in septic shock, you'll see it go up to 80 uh, or perhaps even higher. In burn patients, they have a pathological situation um, that may increase their SVO2, and that may be with cyanide poisoning. Cyanide, uh, as we've said in other podcasts, poisons cytochrome AA3, which is part of what's known as the electron transport chain. We learned about this in high school. I'm convinced that most of what we do in critical care can, is, uh, is predicated on things that I learned in high school. Electron transport chain, also known as oxidative phosphorylation. If cytochrome AA3 is, is poisoned for a variety of reasons, the electron transport chain cannot work. Therefore, the Krebs cycle, also known as um, oxidative phosphorylation, also known as citric acid cycle, will not spin as well. So therefore, I take my glucose molecule and I force it down to form pyruvate. Pyruvate can enter the Krebs cycle, and therefore it goes to lactate. I get a lactic acidosis, but also I run into an oxygen debt circumstance where I'll have an elevated SVO2. And the reason why my SVO2 is elevated is that the oxygen goes out to the peripheral tissues, but it can't extract the oxygen off the hemoglobin because of the poisoning of the machinery uh, that uses uh, um, uh, oxygen. So that is a, base, uh, a baseline there is why you would see another elevation of the SVO2. Now, when the nurses do in what's called a in vivo cal, when we calibrate these devices, you typically want to calibrate them at least once a day. We calibrate them before we insert them, when the swan is still sitting uh, in that little plastic tray that it comes in. Before you remove it from the container, there's something called doing in vitro cal. We pass off all the cables, the nurses push the button, it says in vitro cal, and then we take it all out. The tip nurses will typically do a blood gas at least once and sometimes twice a day depending on the protocols there and they'll draw a blood gas from the PA catheter from the distal port and they send that off uh, to a blood gas and it'll say mixed venous saturation say 77% and the nurse will mark the time and she'll put it in the computer here she will put it in the computer 77% now 
this has to be done in a very precise way. And when you talk to nurses and you say, oh, how is it that you calibrate the swan? You'll, they'll tell you how that they pull back the blood from the, the distal port of the PA catheter at a very slow rate. And I forget the actual time. It's, they, they'll tell you it takes so many minutes. And the reason why it's done at a very slow rate, that if they go and they, they attach that blood gas syringe to that distal port and they just pull back quickly... As they pull back quickly, they're doing is they're actually pulling blood in a retrograde fashion past the alveolus in the lung. So they're pulling blood from the far reaches past the alveolus. They're grabbing oxygenated blood and they're pulling it back into the PA catheter. So, for instance, if the if the blood at the tip of the PA catheter has a saturation of, say, 75%, but what I'm doing is I pull back fast, I'm sucking blood past that, that alveolar lung unit, the blood is oxygenated at that point, gets in the catheter, and it creates a falsely elevated uh, SVO2. So those are some basic premises and basic background on the number SVO2 on a PA catheter. And again, it is a very helpful number. It is becoming increasingly important, particularly when how we deploy the surviving sepsis guidelines. Use it as a continuous variable. Use it so that you have that screen and you're looking at, I'm at 75 now, but over the last 8 or 12 hours, look at that screen and see which direction you're going. When I talk to the residents, for instance, uh, I say, you know, the Tennessee Titans won the last football game. They're obviously going to the Super Bowl. And they all look at me very sheepishly like, guy has finally lost it. You know, they've lost the last eight games. How on earth are they going to the Super Bowl? Um, and then I start saying, okay, well, look at your swan computer. You're only looking at one point in time. Gee, that looks good. But what is that trend? Is the trend up? improving or is the trend down we want to know just like we would look at a sports team are they a winning team or a losing team we wouldn't base it on their last game let's not judge our how our patients are doing based on the last set of vital signs based on the last set of pa numbers when you have the computers and they're able to give you horizontal trends look at the horizontal trends for instance the uh, electronic medical record at vanderbilt i could go into the nurse's flow sheet push a button and i could see horizontal trends lines uh, that show the patient's vital signs for over two or three days. Most of the monitors now, we run the Philips monitors, that you can go in there and you can set horizontal trends for all of your waveforms. So you can see what the mean arterial pressure is doing over a period of 8 to 12 hours. And you can look at what the heart rate's doing. So if a patient had a heart rate of 75 four hours ago and it's 95 now, both of those are normal numbers. But that trend is somewhat disturbing and perhaps requires us investigating it. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Um, try to do these podcasts whenever time will permit. Uh, you can uh, download them on free on iTunes. Uh, if you have any positive uh, uh, feedback, we appreciate uh, that you leave it there. More people uh, will find the, the podcast valuable, and, and I certainly find that helpful. There is an application for this that you can download the podcast um, that uh, Wizard Media has developed uh, for this. I haven't developed it, but if you get problems with it, let me know. And I tell Wizard Media, hey, you know, people aren't happy about it. And they, they fix it, and they do a very good job at, at trying to be responsive. And that way you have all of the 70-some-odd podcasts in your pocket on demand at any time. You can follow me on Twitter at BurnDoc, and uh, that will let you know when we're posting new podcasts as well as uh, new blog entries. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.